So Acts chapter 2, and let's read from verse 1 down to verse number 13. And when the day of Pentecost was fully come, they were all with one accord in one place, and suddenly there came a sound from heaven as of a rushing mighty wind, and it filled all the house where they were sitting. And there appeared unto them cloven tongues like as of fire, and it sat upon each of them. And they were all filled with the Holy Ghost and began to speak with other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. And they were dwelling at Jerusalem Jews, devout men, out of every nation under heaven. Now when this was noised abroad, the multitude came together and were confounded, because that every man heard them speak in his own language. And they were all amazed and marvelled, saying one to another, Behold, are not all these which speak Galileans? And how hear we every man in our own tongue wherein we were born, Parthians and Medes and Elamites and the dwellers in Mesopotamia and in Judea and Cappadocia and Pontus and Asia, Phrygia and Pamphylia, in Egypt and in the parts of Libya about Cyrene and strangers of Rome, Jews and proselytes, Cretes and Arabians. We do hear them speak in our tongues the wonderful works of God. And they were all amazed and were in doubt, saying one to another, What meaneth this? Others, mocking, said, These men, <coughs> excuse me, these men are full of new wine. And that's all we'll read because thereafter Peter stands up and addresses that and he launches into quite a significant sermon that we'll deal with again in another session of the Bible class. So the background here in Acts 2 is that, as we've seen, the Lord Jesus. Uh, rose from the dead and has been seen by so many people and he's been seen um, for these days following the resurrection and meanwhile 120 disciples had assembled as we saw in chapter 1 and were assembling together in this upper room for prayer and waiting upon the Lord and they were discerning the will of God as we saw in relation to the appointment of another apostle uh, to replace Judas and in addition to that they were obediently waiting for the promise of the Lord to them to be fulfilled and so we saw that back in chapter 1 verses 4 and 5 it says that being assembled together with them um, the Lord commanded them that they should not depart from Jerusalem but wait for the promise of the Father which saith he have heard of me for John truly baptized with water but ye shall be baptised with the Holy Ghost not many days hence. And so in obedience, they're gathered in Jerusalem, they haven't scattered, and they are waiting. They're waiting for the Lord's promise to be fulfilled. Now that wasn't a difficult thing for them to anticipate, actually, because as Jews, they would have known that the next stage, even as far as they were concerned, of God's movements on earth in relation to the nation of Israel was going to involve a miraculous outpouring of the Holy Spirit. You can read about that in the book of Ezekiel, in chapter 36 and chapter 37. That was their anticipation. This was going to be something different, but that was their anticipation. So it wasn't a hard thing, really, for them to understand that the Spirit of God was going to be revealed in a miraculous way. One writer put it this way. <coughs> Without the Holy Spirit, Christian discipleship would be inconceivable, even impossible. There can be no life without the life giver. 
No understanding without the spirit of truth. No fellowship without the unity of the spirit. No Christ-likeness of character apart from the fruit of the spirit. No effective witness without his power. As a body without breath is a corpse, so the church without the spirit is dead. And that's a quote from John Stott. So that's the background And then we come to Acts chapter 2. This chapter that's so significant that has been taken much of it and applied out of context in our modern day uh, in relation to the charismatic movement and all its shapes, forms and sizes. But it's important to understand what actually happens here in Acts chapter 2. It's actually foundational for your understanding of the New Testament teaching in relation to the church of which we form apart and it says simply in verse 1 when the day of Pentecost was fully come so that's the point in time that's the day we're on when the day of Pentecost was fully come everything that happens here in this section happens on that day the day of Pentecost which begs the question what is the day of Pentecost and why would that be significant Now, we're not going to get much past this, actually, tonight, because that, again, is very important. That's where Pentecostalism takes its title from, this word Pentecost, as it appears here in this verse, but not only here in this verse, as it appears elsewhere. So, to get an understanding of this, we're going to go back and we're going to go wide, okay? So, you need to follow this with me in your mind, because I'm going to go through this fast and hopefully... uh, I'll take you with me as we do so. So you need to go back into the Old Testament for this, right back, in fact, into the Pentateuch, to the book of Leviticus, and in particular, chapter 23. Now, remember this, that the Old Testament law was given, essentially, primarily to Israel. It certainly was delivered to them. You remember Moses, Sinai, he comes down with the tablets of stone, and these are a summary of the law of God that was being delivered to the nation of Israel. There, were, there was much more than these Ten Commandments, but these Ten Commandments were a summary of the expanded version that would be revealed in books like Leviticus and Deuteronomy and so on. Part of that was that the nation of Israel was given a calendar, and that calendar was punctuated by religious feasts. And those religious feasts would actually set the beginning and end of the calendar of Israel and very important points throughout it. It had a second importance beyond that, which is it is a picture, and we'll see this, of God's dealings in redemption, in salvation from the beginning to the end. And you have that pictured in this calendar of feasts. And these are often referred to right throughout your Bible. They're familiar expressions as you read through your Bible. And we're going to see where they come from and the significance of them. So they're called the Feasts of Jehovah. Leviticus chapter 23, the Feasts of the Lord. And they're divided as follows. If you read Leviticus 23, you will see that they're divided into two groups. The first four feasts and then the second three feasts and there's a gap in between them the first four feasts are as follows the feast of passover now that would be familiar to us 
You remember back in the book of Exodus, the instruction was that there was going to be a great deliverance to the people of Israel as they were captive in Egypt. They were slaves in Egypt. You remember they went down there as an extended family and over time Joseph died and over time they expanded into this great nation, but they were a great slave nation. And the Egyptians controlled them as slaves and they cried out to God for deliverance and God moved in deliverance to redeem them as his people out of that slavery and take them into the promised land. That's the book of Exodus. And Moses was appointed to be the leader, Aaron the high priest. And Moses came and he said, let my people go and Pharaoh wouldn't. And then the plagues came and then eventually the instruction was that the greatest and last plague would be the death of the firstborn. And in order to be preserved, the Israelites were told this, you need to take a lamb and you need to select it. And it had to be according to the prescribed details given and the blood of that lamb had to be applied to the doorpost and the lintel. And the instruction from God was this, when I see the blood, I will pass over you. And the destroying angel would not come into that home and take the life of the firstborn. And so the Israelites <coughs> daubed the blood of the lamb on the doorposts and lintel. And the destroying angel came into Egypt. And those who were not sheltered by the blood of the lamb lost the firstborn. And there was a great slaughter in Egypt that night. The wailing of Egypt was such at the loss of the firstborn in so many homes that Pharaoh told Moses to take the people of Israel and get them out, and they went. And so every year thereafter, there had to be a national remembrance of that deliverance. And the people of God, the Israelites, had to celebrate the Passover, which again was each household taking a lamb, killing it, eating it in a prescribed fashion, and in so doing, remember their deliverance from Egypt. Remember their redemption, that God delivered them from that slavery. They had to remember it as a nation. In fact, it began their year, every year, the Passover. Now, when you think about the Passover, then the Passover was then superseded. Well, was it superseded? The next thing that came was the Feast of Unleavened Bread. I'll go through them and then I'll speak about them. Then there was what's called the Feast of First Fruits. Then there was a 50-day break, which is where the word Pentecost comes from, the word Pente meaning 50. And then there was the Feast of Weeks, Pentecost as it's called. Four feasts, Passover, unleavened bread, first fruits, and then the Feast of Weeks with a 50-day break. Then there was a gap of four months where there was no feast of Jehovah, no holy convocation of the people at Jerusalem, and then the last three feasts took place. The Feast of Trumpets, the Day of Atonement, and the Feast of Tabernacles. That was the seven, day, the seven feasts of Jehovah set out as a group of four and a group of three, with a big gap of four months and a 50-day gap between the first three and the fourth. God commanded... All males in Israel to appear before him in Jerusalem three times a year at three of these feasts. Everyone had to go up to Jerusalem. At Passover, at Pentecost, and at Tabernacles. Everyone had to go to Jerusalem. Uh, Deuteronomy chapter 16, verse 16 said this, They had to come to the place the Lord had chosen to place his name, Jerusalem. 
Deuteronomy 16 again said this, they must not come with empty hands. They had to bring something with them to worship. Deuteronomy 16 goes on and says this, that every man shall give <coughs> as he is able according to the blessing of the Lord thy God which he hath given thee. So you had to go with what you could according to your circumstances. As they went up to Jerusalem three times a year to celebrate the feast of Passover, Pentecost and Tabernacles, they had to sing songs. These are called the songs of ascent as they were going up to Jerusalem. These are the Psalms of ascent. They are the Psalm number 120 through to 134. That was the hymn book of them going up to Jerusalem every year. So that when you go back to these Psalms, you will discover that across the top of these Psalms, from 120 to 134, you have this title, Psalms of Ascent. And that's what it means. They were ascending to the hill of the Lord. Jerusalem's on a hill. They were ascending to the temple to worship. They were going three times a year with these three prescribed feasts. And when Israel turned away from God, that was the first thing to go. And actually, when the Lord Jesus came in John's Gospel, the feasts are described not as the feasts of Jehovah, they're described as the feast of the Jews. So God had been taken out of these festivals. They still practiced the festival, but God wasn't in it. It was all about them. It was by them and for them. It was called the Feast of the Jews. Now let's think about this because that has a significance for us. It might not seem to have a significance because that's Israel. That was their calendar. That was their practice. We don't go to Jerusalem. We don't celebrate these feasts. And that's correct. But these feasts speak to us about things that are spiritually significant. And we don't need to make that up. The New Testament actually tells us what these things mean. For example, the Passover. When you come to 1 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 7, it says this, Christ, our Passover, is sacrificed for us. So all that you can learn about the Passover is a picture of the death of the Lord Jesus Christ for us. That's why when you hear people praying or worshipping or speaking about the blood of the Lamb, the Lamb of God, the death of Christ being like the sacrificial Passover Lamb, that's legitimate because Paul explains that the Lord Jesus Christ is our Passover. He came, he was sacrificed, he was perfect, he was selected by God for the task and the fact is just this, when we trust him as our saviour, we are sheltered from divine judgment by the blood of the Lamb. All of that language is legitimate biblical language because Christ is our Passover and he has been sacrificed for us. After Passover, there was a seven-day feast called the Feast of Unleavened Bread. And they had to take leaven and make sure their house was purified of leaven. There had to be no leaven in their houses for seven days. Leaven is a picture, in this instance, of sin and its contaminating effect in our lives. What is the consequence of being sheltered by the blood, redeemed by the blood, having Christ as our Passover? Paul says this, therefore let us keep the feast. Not with the unleavened bread, and he goes on to describe sin, but then he says this, no, with leavened bread bread of sincerity and truth. 
So he says when we get saved, when Christ is our Passover, there should be a life living where sin is put away and where we live clean lives for God. That's what the Feast of the Unleavened Bread speaks of. A seven-day feast speaks of a cycle of life. It's a full week cycle. That's the life that has been redeemed by the blood. It's a life where sin is ejected and where purity is valued. That's the Feast of Unleavened Bread. And then you come to the next one, the Feast of Firstfruits. What's that? Well, Firstfruits just is what it says it was. It was the first of the harvest, the first and best. And they would take the first and best of their harvest and they would present it to the Lord. Actually, they would wave it, believe it or not, like a big banner. They would wave it before God and they were signifying this is the best of our harvest this is the first of our harvest and it's for God he gets the best he gets the first of the harvest God demands that by the way first fruits that is why when the children of Israel come across the Jordan and they're going to conquer Canaan they come up against Jericho God says to them When you get into Jericho, do not take a single thing. It all belongs to me. What did Achan do? Achan took it. Remember the garment and the the wedge of gold and silver and so on. And you remember he buried it in his tent. And there was extreme judgment fell upon the why? Because he'd stolen from God. Because the first and best of the conquest of that land belonged to God. First fruits is always God's. That's why he demands the first and best of our lives. He doesn't demand the tail end. He doesn't demand the, the stuff in our life that doesn't matter to us. He demands the best and he demands the first priority in our lives. That's first fruits. And so when you come to what's this first fruits feast? Well, actually, it speaks of the resurrection of the Lord Jesus. Paul in 1 Corinthians says, 1 Corinthians 15 verse 20, Now is Christ risen from the dead and become the firstfruits of them that slept. In terms of resurrection, Christ is the best who will ever rise from the dead and he's the first of a harvest that's going to happen. He's the guarantee that we will rise because he has risen. But he's the best out of all who will rise from the dead and is the guarantee of a future harvest. That's the feast of first fruits fulfilled in Christ. But then you have this Pentecost. You come to this. And so there was this 50-day gap. It's interesting that, by the way, on the day of Passover, the Lord Jesus Christ was crucified. Christ, our Passover, was sacrificed on Passover day. That's how accurate God is. Christ rose from the dead on first fruits, the day that the Feast of First Fruits was celebrated. That's how accurate it is. And so, what signifies, is signified by Pentecost, was actually fulfilled on the day of Pentecost. The day of Pentecost was this. They were two loaves of fine flour that are to be offered to God, two separated. And these loaves were bacon with leaven in them. They weren't unleavened, they were bacon with leaven. What does Pentecost signify? 
following the death of Christ, following the consequence of the death of Christ in our lives, following the resurrection of Christ, this would be fulfilled. Where God would take Jew and Gentile and join them into one thing. Breaking down the middle wall of partition that divided them. And up until this point in time, Jew and Gentile were separate because God had made special promises to the nation of Israel they hadn't made to the Gentile nations. But now the two are becoming one entity in Christ. And that's what's going to happen here in Acts chapter 2. There's something new going to be created here. God is going to bind two things together and make them into one. Jew and Gentile come together and you have the birth of the church where there's no such thing as Jew and Gentile. Where we are one in Christ. The middle wall of partition is gone. And so the day of Pentecost was fulfilled on this day of Pentecost. And the, de- the, the baptism of the Spirit was this. When the church was born, the church, which is the body of Christ, came into being, it was baptised, you only baptise a body once, it was baptised in the Holy Spirit, immersed in the Holy Spirit, and is a new entity for God. I won't spend as long mentioning the others. The Feast of Trumpets (coughs) speaks about a future event yet to take place. When God will call his elect from the four corners of the earth and gather them together. The day of atonement has yet to take place. That's the manifestation of Christ coming out of heaven. You get actually a reference to that in Hebrews chapter 9, verse 28. When Christ was once offered to bear the sins of many, and unto them that look for him shall he appear the second time without sin unto salvation. That's the fulfillment of the day of atonement, (coughs) excuse me, yet to happen. And then you have... Tabernacles, that speaks about the millennial reign of Christ. So you have these feasts that speak about God's dealings with mankind and redemption from start to finish, and you have some already fulfilled. Passover's been fulfilled. The Feast of Firstfruits, been fulfilled. Pentecost, been fulfilled. And there are three still to be fulfilled in God's dealings with Israel. So having said all of that, we come back to this. And when the day of Pentecost was fully come, God's timeline bang on time to the very day. Now that's remarkable that these things happened on the very day that they were being fulfilled. And when the day of Pentecost was fully come, they are all gathered together in one place. It's also to say this, that the baptism of the Spirit is a scheduled event in God's plan. So we don't, nowadays you hear people and they're praying for the baptism of the Spirit and they're waiting for the baptism of the Spirit and they're trying to be a certain um, quality of person and standard of Christian so that they can be baptised in the Spirit. But actually the baptism of the Spirit was a scheduled event in God's calendar. And it's not instigated by prayer or by waiting or by being. God did it when he said he would do it and when he demonstrated it actually in Old Testament in pictures and types and shadows. It's a scheduled event. We know schedule because the Lord Jesus said, wait until it happens. 
Luke 24, verse 49. Behold, I send the promise of my Father upon you. Stay in Jerusalem until you're endued with power from on high. He had said in John 14, John 16, that he would go and he would send another comforter, the Holy Spirit. And he had said this, that he won't just be with you, he will be in you. And that was a huge big difference. And so what happens here? Just look at the detail in the text as to what actually happened. Number one, there was a sound. Number two, there was a sight. Number three, there was speech. That's not hard to remember, three S's. And so there was a sound. Now, if you look at pictures or whatever of this scene, the upper room, the baptism of the Spirit, you'll get this random picture sometimes. You Google it and try it. You get this random people, a picture of disciples all sitting there and their hair's all like out here because there's like a whirlwind in the room. There was no wind in the room. There was a sound in the room. So there wasn't a hurricane in the room. It doesn't say that. It says there came a sound from heaven. Now this sound is the sound as of a rushing mighty wind. That's what it sounded like. So you can imagine sitting there and suddenly there is a sound in the room. The room would have been a bit bigger than this room, but not that much bigger. And this, the sound filled the room. And it was the same sound you get in a howling gale. Except there was no gale. Just the sound. It was signifying the presence of the Spirit of God. Because the Lord Jesus said himself in John 3, the wind blows where it lists. You hear the sound thereof. You cannot tell whence it comes and whether it goes. So is everyone that is born of the Spirit. The Spirit of God is symbolised by that symbol of wind. It's such a good symbol because, you know, when you go out on a windy day, you can't grab the... It's, it's intangible, but you see the effect of it. Um, this morning when I was driving across the M8, there was one of these road signs that get wheat across the motorway, you could see that there was, a, there was a power being applied to that sign to make it fly as it did, but you couldn't see it. It's intangible in that sense. And that's the Spirit of God. That's a beautiful picture of the Spirit of God. And the presence of the Spirit of God was signified by that sound. And notice this, they were immersed in the sound. They were baptised in the Spirit. It was all around them. They were sitting as a group and they were completely encircled, encompassed, if you like, by the sound which signified the presence of the Spirit of God in the building. And they're in the building and they are being immersed. That's what the word baptised means. They're being immersed in that sound. They're being baptised in the Spirit of God. It's a historical event. First of all, there was a sound. Secondly, there was a sight. They could see something. It says in verse number three, there appeared unto them cloven tongues like as of fire, and it sat upon each of them. So here's something that they saw that appeared. Now, this was not something that they experienced as a group. 
The baptism of the Spirit was a group event. They were all immersed in the sound. But this was an individual experience. No. Because they saw tongues. It sounds a bit weird. But they saw individual tongues which separated. That's the idea of cloven tongues. It wasn't like tongues like a snake's tongue. You know, like you speak with forked tongue. It was rather that tongues came and separated and there was a single tongue sitting above each individual. And that was like as of fire. It wasn't fire. It wasn't that there was a kind of, you know, you're going to get your head singed. It was that there was a tongue that had the appearance of fire sitting above every individual person. Now, this is obviously not a normal thing. I mean, you can sit there and you could pray to the cows come home and there will be no tongue comes above your head and sits like as of fire. This is unusual. This is miraculous. What is being signified is this, that God is giving to each of these individual a gift. He's enabling them. And the gift is the gift of tongues. Hence, the symbol. Each of them got it. And then what happened was this. In verse 4, they began to speak. So you have the sound, you have the sight, and you have the speech. And they did so as they were filled with the Holy Ghost. Now again, this expression of being filled means to be controlled. It doesn't mean to be filled as in like, that's half full. So therefore you top it up. You know, you can't get more. The Holy Spirit's a person. You don't get half of them. You either have them or you don't. And as a Christian, you are, when you are saved, indwelt with the Holy Spirit. Not in half measures. That's impossible. You know, it would be bizarre to say that you're here, but only half of you is here. Now, you might just be here in body as the same, not in spirit. Your mind might be 100 miles away. But you are here. You can't have half of you. The Spirit of God is a person. He is either in you or he's not. That's not what being filled is. He's not like a ghost or a substance. He's a person. He is spirit, but he's, a, he's an individual. He's a person. And he comes as a person and indwells us as Christians. He takes up residence within our hearts. Paul said this, upon believing, when he writes to the Ephesians, you are sealed with that Holy Spirit of promise. It's the actual evidence and guarantee that you are a Christian, that you are indwelt by the Spirit of God. So to be filled with the Spirit doesn't mean that. It means this, that you're controlled by he who indwells you. Let me give another example. Inside some of you, and maybe me, there is a seed of anger. Inside others, there might be a seed of jealousy. Inside others, there might be a seed of compassion. Whatever it is, something in you. If you lose your temper, that anger is controlling you. How would we describe it? He's filled with anger. He's full of anger. He's filled with anger. It means to be controlled. It's used like this in the Bible on different occasions. And that's what it means here. That the Spirit of God in whom they were baptised, controls them in relation to the gift that's been given to them. 
that gift of tongues. The consequence is this. They began to speak with other tongues. Now, if you change that word tongue to language, which is another helpful translation of it, then it takes away all the problems that you get with people who say they're speaking in tongues. This was not, this was not something that sounded like gibberish. This was not something that was unintelligible. It was a language they were speaking. Now we know that because actually we're told what the languages were and we're told what dialects. It would be the equivalent actually to someone um, saying... Um, Someone was speaking in English and they were actually speaking in a dialect of, maybe English isn't a good example, but a dialect of English, say up north in Peterhead, which is a different language within a language, or, or in some other part of the UK where the language is quite different and it's a dialect, so to speak. So it's described here, Parthians, Medes, Elamites, Mesopotamians, people from Judah, Cappadocia, Pontus, Asia, Phrygia, Pamphylia, in Egypt, people from Libya, people from Rome, people from Crete, people from Arabia, were all there. And these disciples are talking to them in their language. It was a linguistic miracle. The Spirit of God enabled them, without any education in the language, to speak so that these people would understand them in their language. That's miraculous. It was, there was no interpretation. No one listened to the kind of um, sounds and then said, what, what that actually means is this. People were saying, no, I get it because he's speaking my language. He's actually talking in my language. And how is that even possible? It was a linguistic miracle. The word tongues is the Greek word glossa, which sometimes used means a literal tongue, but often is used of foreign languages. A supernatural, miraculous ability to speak in a foreign language given to these disciples on this occasion. Which, by the way, was completely in accord with what the Old Testament said would happen. What was the significance of this? Well, first of all, it meant that the gospel could be spread in a way that otherwise it couldn't. Because a limited amount of people who are witnesses to the resurrection of Jesus Christ can now preach the gospel to people who had come up to Jerusalem from all parts of the then known world because it was the time of Pentecost. You remember one of these feasts and people were gathering to that central point. The gospel was communicated to them in their own language so they could take it away again. God was going to set the world in fire with the gospel and this was the means of doing it. But there was another reason. It should have actually spoken to the people of Israel because in the Old Testament, in fact, Paul explains this when he talks about the gift of tongues to the Corinthian assembly. He says this, tongues are, are for a sign. 1 Corinthians 14, verse 22, not to those who believe, but to the unbelievers. I read a little bit about it this week and was interested in this. That a lot of what I read about the modern 
um, idea of tongue speaking is this. That tongues that are spoken in a modern way are described as being a language that is the language of angels. Taken from 1 Corinthians 13, the hyperbole of the argument there, though I speak with the tongue of men and of angels. That's hyperbole. But people take it and say, that's tongue speaking. And I am praying to God in a way that only God can understand. And an interpreter will need to interpret that for people in the audience, but it's not for the audience. It's a spiritual gift that brings me into deeper relationship with God. The Bible explicitly says, when speaking about this gift, that it's not for believers. It's for unbelievers. And in particular, in context, it was for the Jewish unbeliever as a sign. When you go to the Old Testament, over and over again it was said this. For example, Isaiah 28, verses 11 and 12. With stammering lips and another tongue, he will speak to this people to whom he said, This is the rest with which you may cause the weary to rest. This is the refreshing, yet they would not hear. It's, it's an indication that God is moving in judgment upon the nation of Israel, that people would speak in other tongues to them. Time and again, you have that. God warned the Israelites in the Old Testament, if you're disobedient, he would speak to them in foreign languages as an indication of his judgment. It was symbolic of that. And it was a gift that enabled the gospel to be spread. And I think it's interesting that it evidently was a gift that Peter did as time went on. That's not my subject this evening. But if you do a study on this gift, you will discover that even by the time Paul wrote to the Corinthians, he was downplaying it. Saying there are more important, more fruitful gifts that God has given than this one. Concentrate on them. To communicate God's truth before the Bible was complete, he spoke about the gift of prophecy and the gift of teaching. And he said, there's more value in that than there is in this tongue speaking. And he put in a whole um, regulatory structure around about the gift of tongues to limit it. Don't do it, he said, unless someone can interpret it. Not interpreting gibberish, but interpreting the foreign language that was being spoken for the benefit of everyone in the room. New Testament tongue speaking, the gift of tongues, is very different from what you hear today. Very different. It was the speaking of foreign languages. So much so in 1 Corinthians 13 verse 8, Paul says this, listen, the gift of tongues is going to stop. He says it shall cease. And he was speaking to people 2,000 years ago. And it has stopped. The canon of scripture has been complete. The gospel has spread. And the need for gifts, that foundational gift of tongues, has passed. And here in Acts chapter 2, it was necessary. It was appropriate. But remember, it was a linguistic miracle. A miracle of language. Nothing that was angels' language, so-called, or, or, or kind of gibberish or whatever. It was known languages. Now, in verse 12, it says this. They were all amazed. And they said, what does this mean? They understood that this meant something. They just didn't know what. 
And Peter, in verse 14, stands up, and Peter's about to tell them what it means. And Peter goes back to the Old Testament, to the prophecy of Joel, and he begins to link it with that, and then he ends up preaching the gospel to them, because that was the significance of the meaning of this. So that will do us this evening, and again, we trust the Lord will bless that. And as you look into the detail of it, it's another one of these examples where taking time to read carefully what it actually says rather than what people say it says demonstrate that often what people say about the Bible isn't what the Bible actually says, certainly in this case. Let's just pray.